Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you and we adore you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together as Mishpacha's family, to uh, dig into your word, to hear from you, to receive your voice. Father, I pray that you speak clearly and intentionally into our hearts and our lives this morning. Use me as a vessel for you, Lord. Let nothing of me be involved except that which you have ordained to be spoken this morning. Father, I pray that you move in our midst, that you humble our hearts and our minds to receive from you, and that you touch us today, that no one in this place leave the way they came in, that we all leave changed and touched and molded more into the image and likeness of our Creator. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. This week we are in Parsha Shemot, uh, which is the first Parsha of the book of Exodus, beginning with Exodus 1. Um, I, I love reading through uh, the, the Torah cycle every year and, and diving into what the Lord has done among our people, what the Lord has done for our people. In particular, as we're looking through the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus is it's an exciting book. Um, I, I don't know that the movies that have been made about the Exodus thus far have done any justice to the grandeur of the book of Exodus uh, and what the Lord has done. I think, uh, I, I think that the scriptures far outweigh any sort of a movie that Hollywood could ever do. Uh, but not only that, but it includes, the Bible in general includes everything that the, that the movies could ever want to have in them, from chase scenes to murder to, uh, to, to spies and, and, uh, and so on, all the way down to all of the things none of us want to see in movies, but for some reason Hollywood keeps shoving in there. Um, it's got all kinds of stuff in the Bible that will blow our mind. Uh, but as we look through it, what we realize is that everything in the scriptures from Genesis all the way through is to get us to one reality. All right? And I think far too often uh, as believers, but especially uh, among the Jewish people, we look at the scriptures um, and we are so focused on the traditions and the, the teachings that have been passed down throughout the generations that we lose focus on the single intention of the scriptures. And the reality is, is that the body of Messiah has done great damage to the image that, of that single intention of the scriptures and what it means to the Jewish people. And so this morning as we dig through Exodus, um, for some this may end up being a brutal message. It wasn't my intention. Uh, I can only speak what the Lord puts on my heart. Um, and for others, you may have heard all of this before and know this all already and that's all fine and dandy too. Um, take it, be a blessing to others and share it with them. But with that said, I do want to dive into the word this morning, into this week's Parsha from Exodus uh, chapter 1. We dig in, we're reading about Moses and the rise of Moses. Um, but in particular, beginning with verse 6, Exodus 1 verse 6, it says, Then Joseph died, as did all his brothers and all that generation. Yet B'nai Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew extremely numerous. So the land was filled with them. Now the Lord said, I'm going to make, when I bring you down to Egypt, tells Jacob, when I bring you down to Egypt, I am going to make a great nation out of you, right? 70 go in, 600,000 men leave, which means as many as 1.5 million people left. Uh, that were actual blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says a mixed multitude left with them uh, when they left out of Egypt. 
to go and serve the Lord. And so some numbers say upwards of three to five million people total that left. And at least 1.5 million of those were, were direct blood lineage uh, Hebrew children, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the rest of them were of a mixed multitude. They were Gentiles. They were those of the nations. They were Ger Zedekim, uh, Gerim Zedekim, righteous ones of the nations, who wanted to serve the Lord with the, the children of Israel. And so as we look at this, he says, Yet B'nai Israel, verse 7, were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. What land? Where were they at at this point? Mitzrayim, Egypt, right? So they're in this foreign land. Uh, they're foreigners in a foreign land, sojourners in a foreign land, uh, yet again. And as they are here and God is blessing, they begin to grow exponentially. Um, and as they begin to grow, it becomes a problem because this new Pharaoh rises. Verse 8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And there's a number of different theories here. Um, one theory is that it's actually the same Pharaoh that, Egypt, that Joseph served under. He just uh, decided to change his opinion of the Hebrew children after Joseph died. Uh, another theory says that it's a new uh, Pharaoh that has arisen that decided that he could care less about Joseph and the Hebrew children and just kind of rewrote history, if you would, revisionary history. It's kind of a big thing right now. Um, but rewrote history to, uh, to, to ignore that Joseph and the, the, the Hebrew children are a part of Egypt and that God used them to save Egypt and so on. And so as this begins to happen, this Pharaoh gets upset because the Hebrew children and the Israelites are growing says verse 11, so they set slave masters over them to afflict them with forced labor. And they built Pitom and Ramses uh, as storage cities for Pharaoh. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. So the Egyptians dreaded the presence of B'nai Israel. Moreover, verse 15, moreover, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shifra and the other Puah. And said, when you help the Hebrew women during childbirth, look at the sex. If it's a son, then kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. And the Hebrew uh, is more akin to, and if it's a daughter, make her live. Um, yet the midwives feared God, so they did not do as the kings of Egypt commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? Let the boys live. And they went on to say, because the Hebrew women uh, are too quick, they're, they're different than the Egyptian women, they're too quick in childbirth, and before we can get there, they've already popped a kid out, and it's too late for us to do what we were supposed to do. And they make a, a really uh, genius excuse. Uh, but verse 22 says, But Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, You are to cast every son that is born into the river, but let every daughter live. Now, I want to focus in on this for a second. Notice the language changes all of a sudden. At first he says, All of the sons of the Hebrew children have to die. He tells the, the, the Israelite midwives that they are to kill the male children born of Hebrew women. And when they don't do so, and they come up with this conniving excuse, um, then Pharaoh comes back and the scripture says, and Pharaoh told all of his people, kill your sons when they are born and let your daughters live. It's no longer just the Hebrew children. He says, tell all of the people, kill your sons when they are born, let your daughters live. So he is so vehement about wanting to see the Hebrew uh, people either completely entrapped for slavery forever or just to die out and be out of their hair that he's willing to, uh, to sacrifice his own people to see this happen. He's willing to, to tear down his own country to see this happen, to get rid of the, the Jewish people. So as we continue through this Parsha, uh, we move on to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. 
the, the, this is the account of Moses and Moses' rise, and I promise you this is all coming together in a minute, okay? Uh, we move on to Moses, Moses' rise. Uh, verse 1 says, Now Moses was tending the, the... I'm sorry, I skipped ahead of myself. Moses is born. Uh, his mother, Yocheved, goes, Hey, you know what? This kid is clearly uh, special. I mean, what Jewish mother doesn't think that? But this kid is special. We don't want this kid to die. So she tries to hide him. She hides him for three months. It doesn't pan out so well. She thinks that they're going to come and, and take her baby and kill him. So she takes him, hides him in a basket, puts him in the reeds. Um, Jewish tradition says that the, the word here can be, a, the, for basket, can be translated as basket or ark, as in the Ark of the Covenant or the Tar Ark. Uh, but the, the idea here is she puts him in this, this um, uh, protective place that hopefully floats, sets him by the river in the reeds, and uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes by. Now Miriam, Miriam at this point is seven years old, uh, which is Moses' brother. I'm sorry, Moses' sister. She's seven years old. She's hanging out by the reeds waiting to see what happens to her kid brother. Um, and so Pharaoh's daughter comes by, finds him, goes, oh, it's a Hebrew kid. I feel sorry for him. I'm going to take him as mine. And Miriam goes and runs down and says, hey, he's a Hebrew kid. Do you want me to go find a Hebrew uh, uh, nurse, uh, nurse aide to come and take care of him for you so that he's... he's uh, and she goes, yeah, that's a great idea. So she goes home and gets Yocheved, which is Moses' mother, her mother, and brings her back. Says, here's one for you. And so she takes him, and she uh, feeds him and weans him and raises him for a little while, and then hands him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And so Pharaoh's daughter then raises him as her own. So just to put this in perspective, Moses, a child of Israel, he's a Hebrew. He is a blood descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is a Levite, is raised in the house of Pharaoh. The last savior for the Jewish people was like Pharaoh himself, right? Joseph, the last uh, savior, the, the Mashiach, Messiah-like individual that saved Israel, that God used to save Israel, was like Pharaoh himself. He was part of the household of Pharaoh. He was overseeing the entire nation. He dressed like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. He talked, uh, for those that still let the song out of your head, it's back in there again. You're welcome. Three weeks in a row, I stuck that in on you. But uh, he, he had this appearance of, of, of being an Egyptian. So then all of a sudden, Moses comes up. Now, Moses is the one who actually God uses to bring redemption to the people, not just salvation, but redemption and freedom to the people of Israel. Moses is also a Messiah-like individual, a, a foreshadowing of Messiah. So as Moses begins to, uh, to grow up, he's being raised in the household of Pharaoh. He's being raised as the grandson of Pharaoh. He's adopted, but he's being raised as the grandson of Pharaoh, which for those that can't do the math means that in theory, he is being raised for the potential of possibly one day taking the throne of Egypt. All right. So he's being raised and groomed to be like what Joseph was groomed to be when he sat on the throne. So again, God uses uh, a Hebrew child, uh, an Israelite, in a great powerful position in Egypt to bring safety and freedom uh, and salvation to the people of Israel. So Moses one day decides as he gets a little older, he goes trouncing about through Egypt and he realizes that the Egyptians are really mean to his people. Uh, he realizes he's a Hebrew child. I kind of picture he spent the first couple of years with his own mother, with Yocheved. I kind of picture that she may have you know, instilled the idea of who he really was in the back of his head. It was always there, even as he was being raised to be an Egyptian. And so he's walking about the city. He leaves the palace. He's walking about the city. And he realizes that the Egyptians are really harsh on the Hebrew children. The, the, the Egyptians are really, really mean slave drivers. And he sees this one that's brutalizing a, a slave, Hebrew slave. And so he kills him, right? He's Pharaoh's grandkid. He can do whatever he wants. He kills him. So then he goes on about his life. The next day he's out and about and he thinks nobody knows anything about it. And he sees a couple of Hebrews that are fighting amongst themselves. And he goes, hey guys, come on. 
you guys are brothers. This shouldn't be happening. This is ridiculous. They go, what? You can kill us like you killed the, the Egyptian? And suddenly it dawns on him, that may have not been quite so secret. And so he takes off and he runs. And this is where we pick up at. He runs to the hills of Midian, which for those that um, uh, don't keep track of what's happening in Scripture, we, if you notice, Israel always keeps going back to the same place, right? So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they kept going back to their Sheva, to the, the wells of blessing, the wells of seven. Um, and Israel goes to some of the same locations and in their journey of Israel and uh, of the, the wilderness, their journey in the wilderness, they go to a couple of the same sites and camp there over and over again to relearn lessons they didn't learn in the first place. So here Moses runs to Midian, which for those that aren't aware, Midian is, is exactly where uh, Abraham came from. It's where uh, Isaac's wife came from. It's where Jacob ran to to go find a wife and to get away from his brother that wanted to kill him. It's where Jacob comes back from when he comes back to Canaan and so on. So here Moses goes, hey, things panned out okay for my forefathers when they went back to Midian, so I'll go there too. So he goes back to Midian. He's in Midian, and this is where we pick up verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, which by the way, anybody know what Jethro's other name in scripture is? Reuel. Uh, so if you see Reuel, speaking of Jethro, if you see Jethro, it's Reuel. So same thing in both places. Um, so he, uh, he, he led the flock to the farthest end of the wilderness, coming to a mountain, to the mountain of God, uh, Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. Then the angel of Adonai appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush. So he looked and saw the bush burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. Moses thought, I will go now and see this great sight. Why is this bush not burning? Anybody, anybody been a fire truck chaser? Um, my wife and I used to do that a lot. Uh, we don't do it quite as much anymore because we had a really good uh, close run-in, a little too close to a really bad fire. Uh, we were in New York, and we followed this, uh, this fire truck that was going to a, a call in our, our area, and we followed it, and we, they, they had the road blocked off about a block away from the, the actual house that was on fire. And where we were sitting, looking to, watching the fire, firefighters, where we were sitting, you could literally feel the heat of the fire through the window, and you could see your arm hair singeing. Um, you could feel your skin starting, starting to change colors. We were a block from the house. That's how hot this thing was burning. And we were like, all right, that's probably not a good idea, and we left. Um, but but if, you, if, you, if you've ever done that, you know, you see a fire, or even, I mean, logic, common sense logic, there's a fire in your kitchen, uh, you either put it out, or if it's too far gone, you know it's too bad, what do you do? You get the crap out of there, right? You run, you get away from it as fast as you can. Uh, Moses sees this bush on fire and he goes, huh, that's curious, let's go see what this is about. And he walks over to it, right? Uh, clearly he's never been through a wildfire, but he walks over to this bush and, uh, and as he gets close to it, uh, verse 4 says, When Adonai saw that he turned to look, he called to him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So he answered, Hineni, here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob. So Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then Adonai said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their slave masters. For I know their plan, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land into a good and large land, a land flowing milk and honey, into the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Perizzites, not Perizzites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Some of the people that are problematic for Israel now are Perizzites. It's a whole other problem there. Um, now behold, the cry of the Israel has come to me. Moreover, I have seen them, uh, seen the oppression the Egyptians have inflicted on them. 
And at this point, God starts to call Moses out. Moses starts kind of getting a picture of what God wants him to do. And Moses argues with God. I don't know about you guys. I've experienced this. I, I've done this. Um, I refused to move back down south while we were in New York. Uh, said we would never come back to Alabama. We end up moving to Georgia, which is, you know, south again. And we end up back in Alabama at some point. Um, so clearly I did not win. Um, but Moses starts to argue with God. And I mean, he's, he's getting aggressive about the situation. He does not want to do what God's calling him to do. God's calling him to go and to lead Israel out of Egypt. He's calling him to go back to Pharaoh, his own grandfather, and say, hey, you should let my people go. You should let these people leave to go worship God, to worship the God of our forefathers who returned back to Sinai. And so every time he presents an argument, which by the way, if you can't count this, five times, five times he presents an argument to, to God and says, hey, I can't do it because. And God comes back and goes, oh yeah, you can, because. <laughs> And so there's back and forth, back and forth. And so Moses says, uh, but who am I? What's so special about me? And God says, it's nothing special about you. I just called you. I want to use you. That's all. Real humbling, right? Um, and, and finally Moses says, but, but uh, I don't speak so well. Uh, I've never spoken well. I don't speak well. Now, Jewish tradition has a, a slant at which we look at this. And, and uh, the, the Midrash tells us that, um, that Moses, when he was a young child, he was in Pharaoh's household, that Pharaoh started to get a little jealous of him because he liked to play with his crown. He liked to, to grab his crown and play with it. So he thought this was while he was like an infant child, uh, you know, a toddler. So Pharaoh thought that uh, Moses wanted to arise to his seat and take his power and get rid of him. Uh, and he got real jealous of a toddler, right? And so uh, tradition says that the, the wise men came together for Pharaoh, one of which they said was, was uh, Reuel, the, the Jethro, the priest of Midian, uh, his father would become his father-in-law comes in and that Jethro tells Pharaoh, look, there's an easy way to test this. Set down before the toddler uh, uh, a gold, uh, gold item on one spot and then on another spot set down a hot piece of coal. And whichever one he picks up, if he picks up the gold, we'll know his heart, we'll know his intention. If he picks up the coal, then you know that that's not his intention. And so the tradition says that they set this down before him as a toddler and he reached over and he grabbed for the, the, the gold, but before he could really reach and grab it, that an angel came and moved his hand to the coal, and he picked up the coal, and you know, toddlers instantly put everything to their mouth, so he picks up the hot coal, and he puts it to his mouth, and he burns his mouth, and that's what caused him to, to not speak so well for the rest of his life. So that's what Jewish tradition says. I have a little bit of a different opinion on this, um, because that's the way I sing, and I like to make things up a bit, and I'm sure. I have a little bit of a different opinion for this, uh, mainly because it's way more logical than that. Um, but where is it that Moses was raised? Egypt. When he leaves Egypt, he's about 40 years old. He was raised in Egypt, right? So he was raised in the household of Pharaoh, which means he was raised as an Egyptian, which means his primary language is Egyptian. What language does Hebrew children speak? Hebrew. Although he's at least loosely familiar with it because he was raised in his mother's arms, he didn't speak Hebrew so well. So when God says, I want you to go do this, and he says, but I don't speak well. I don't think that he was trying to make an excuse saying he stutters or has a problem with communicating or didn't do well in a speech class and barely passed or what. But I think that what he was saying was, I don't speak their language. Why are you sending me to speak to them when I don't speak their language? Right? And what was God doing? He says, your brother Aaron, he'll speak your voice. He'll be your spokesperson. And he tells Moses, you will be like God to Israel, and he will be like my prophet, or like your prophet. 
And so there's this whole thing, and every time he comes up with a decent argument, God undoes it. Uh, but one of the primary arguments that he makes is, well, how will I know that you're really doing this? How will I know that this is really the God of my forefathers? And Adonai says to him, when you come back to this very mountain with the nation of Israel to worship and fear, then you'll know for sure. So everything that happens between Moses' experience on Sinai and Moses bringing Israel to Sinai was all a step of faith for him. Because everything he asked was, how will I prove to them? How will I prove to Pharaoh? How will I prove? When he finally says, how do you, I know? God says, oh, you'll know when you come back here. Right? So it's, it's a distance thing. You've got to step out in faith. It's kind of like uh, you can't know what's in the ACA bill until you vote for it, and then you can read it. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's just pointing out Ill- illogical things. But uh, as this goes on, he, he ends up and he leaves, and he goes back and he runs into Aaron, and they go to do their thing, and, and everything comes from it. But here's what I want to talk about. Uh, I say all this to do this. Moses is a foreshadowing of Messiah. Right? We see the, the salvation of the people with Moses, the redemption of the people, the freedom brought for the people of Israel uh, through, through Moses. Um, we see that there is a mixed multitude, a mass exodus of a mixed multitude with Israel, which means that in a very real sense, a very literal sense at that point in time, that the promise that God made to Abraham, that through his seed, the nations will be blessed, became a reality in that day. Now, that doesn't mean it was the ultimate reality of that prophecy, but it became a reality in that day, and the children of Israel could see and go, oh, I can kind of see where this might go, right? What was really promised to Abraham was more about Messiah, when the, the coming of Messiah comes, that the nations would be blessed through him. And we see that because Messiah, Yeshua, offers his life. The first uh, hundred years of the body of Messiah was predominantly Jewish followers of Messiah. Um, the, in Acts, we read about uh, the Caio, uh, um, Cornelius coming to faith and his household coming to faith. We see the expansion of the message among the Gentiles. Now, every time the, the, the Shalachim, the, the sent ones, the, the apostles went out, uh, to, to predominantly Gentile areas. They went to synagogues first and ministered there. Then they went out to the streets and to where the, the, the people of the nations were and they ministered there. But as the body of Messiah begins to grow, there's more and more Gentiles coming in, just like, and I fervently believe this, at Mount Sinai, there were more Gentiles than there were Jews. There were more people of the nations, more Gerim Zedekim, more righteous ones of the nations than there were that were actually blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God didn't create Jews, he created mankind. From mankind, he brought Jews out to be a light to mankind, right? So it was never intended for everything that is given to us in the Torah, the, 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 the uh, Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, or even for that matter, the Baruch to be hoarded by the Jewish people. It was intended for us to take it to the nations, which is why a vast nation was birthed out of Egypt so that we could go out, meet with the God of our forefathers, become his chosen people, and then go and carry that message to the nations. We ended up contorting the message. We ended up, uh, the Jewish people, we, we contorted things. We made it ours. We refused to share with other people. We caused ourselves all kinds of problems. But then Messiah comes. First century, Messiah is walking on earth. He offers his life as a sacrifice for Jew first and also the nations, but ultimately for all of humanity, for his creation. He offers his life as a sacrifice. All those who believe in him, who call upon his name, who receive the blood atonement of Messiah, become saved and have eternal presence in our Father, uh, with our Father, eternal eternity in his presence in heaven. 
and uh, the, the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh in Acts chapter 2 and so on and so forth, which, by the way, it wasn't anything new. It was all foreshadowed. There were, there were things in the, the Tanakh that pointed to all of these events happening, like Shavuot, when the, the Torah was given to Mount Sinai, and then the exact almost mirror image in Jerusalem at the temple on Shavuot, when the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh happened in Acts chapter 2, and so on. And so as all of this is going on, the Jewish people immediately grasp onto Messiah. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, many numbers or many historians say that when Messiah walked, as many as a million Jewish people believed in him. They didn't fall away from faith in him until after he died on the cross and they didn't know what to do. It was different than what we had expected. We were looking for Mashiach bin David, this victorious king that would end Rome's rule over us. And then this dude dies. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. It doesn't work out. So all of a sudden, the followers of Messiah and the Jewish community dwindle. But this community still grows. In Acts chapter 2, there are thousands of Jewish people and those that converted to Judaism that had become believers uh, when the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh happened. And then daily, there were those being added to their numbers we read about at the end of Acts 2. But what we see today is that the, the body of Messiah, which now is predominantly Gentile, and for the last uh, 1,700, 1,800 years of the history of the body of Messiah, has almost entirely dichotomized itself from its Jewish heritage has almost entirely dichotomized itself from the foundations of where faith in Messiah comes from. Heck, from the foundation, the fact that Yeshua was Jewish and all of his disciples in the first century were Jewish and almost everybody that believed in him for the first uh, century and a half, almost two centuries were Jewish or were adherents to Judaism. But the body of Messiah, again, just like we seem to do pretty regular as humans, we think we know better. And so we undo all of this. We dichotomize everything Jewish. We, the, the body of Messiah says we want the Jewish Messiah without all the Jewish stuff or really even the Jewish people. Um, if they want to become Christians and leave Judaism, then that's okay. But other than that, we don't really want the Jewish people uh, involved in this either. Um, and what ends up happening is the body of Messiah has now taken and made our Messiah an Egyptian. Just like Egypt made Moses look like an Egyptian, just like Egypt made Joseph look like an Egyptian, so that the Jewish people didn't recognize their own salvation that was being brought, the salvation they were to bring to the nations, the body of Messiah has made Yeshua not look Jewish. As a matter of fact, most paintings and artwork and stuff that we see of him uh, from Christian tradition, he looks like an Aryan. Um, and last I checked, Middle Eastern people really don't have blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, so I'm just throwing that one out there. But uh, so as all of this is going on, what we see is that we have ultimately turned Messiah in the, the, the image we present of Messiah. We have made him unrecognizable to his people. Just like Egypt did with, with Moses where Moses said, but I don't speak their language. I don't speak well. I'm an Egyptian. I was raised as an Egyptian. I know I've got Jewish blood. I know that my parents are Levi'im. I know that there's this great calling for my, my family, but I don't, I don't relate to these people. The one time I tried to, it didn't pan out well. I killed somebody and had to run from everything I knew. I don't know this. And God says, I got it covered. Don't worry about it. I've got it under control. And so as we look at the Brach of the Shah, as we look at the New Testament and the covenant writings, we see that Yeshua is very clearly Jewish. But because he didn't come in what our mindset of the Messiah was supposed to be, his Jewish people didn't fully recognize him. And since then, those that, because the Jews were called to be a light to the nations, Gentiles coming to the body of Messiah were called to do what? 
drive the Jew to jealousy for their God. But look, as a Jewish believer, no offense to anybody that goes to a church, as a Jewish believer, I can tell you right now, there is nothing about a church that drives Jewish people to jealousy for their own God. Because Jews today look at the church and go, that's a different religion. They believe in three separate gods. That's polytheism. And Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema doesn't allow that. Now, that's not that Christians believe in polytheism. Don't get me wrong. That's just a perspective. Um, and so we run into all kinds of problems there. Because what the, the nation of Israel was brought out of Egypt to do as a foreshadowing of what Messiah would do would be to be a blessing to the nations. There was this mass exodus of, of the nations, this mixed multitude that left with us. And then we suddenly started making it an exclusivity thing where the nations really couldn't come and be a part of it. Then Messiah comes and he says, no, no, this is for all. And then the nations come in and go, oh, awesome, we can finally get in this thing. And then you go, eh, we don't really want the Jews anymore. Let's make it exclusive for us. And so the ones that were supposed to be a light to the nations or the ones that were supposed to drive Jews to jealousy for their God ended up instead driving them away from their Messiah. And you have things like the pogroms in, in uh, Eastern Europe and, uh, and uh, the Eurasian continents that uh, were done under the name of, of Jesus in the auspices of the church and you have the Holocaust, which in the Jewish mind today is the only time that, that Catholics and Protestants came together to do anything in unity, and that was to kill Jews. And you have the Crusades where on their way to try and take Jerusalem back from the Arabs, they slaughtered Jews for practice. Uh, and you have the Inquisition where we kicked Jews out of Spain and Portugal and, and the same thing happened two or three times in England and you have all of these events over and over and over and repeating themselves today where denomination after denomination after denomination are turning their back on Israel while at the same time professing the scriptures, faith in the scriptures that say that Israel is going to be restored to usher in Mashiach's return and they say they want Mashiach's return. Can't really have it both ways. We can't turn our back on God's prophecy becoming reality and say we want Messiah to come back. It doesn't work that way. In the same sense, we as believers today cannot cry out we want Messiah to return and then go, oh, but all this bad stuff we see happening around us like wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and, and uh, powers rising that are leading believers astray and all these kinds of things, we don't want those things to happen. We want Messiah to come back. We want all that stuff to end. It doesn't work. We can't get both. We either want one or the other. We either want Messiah to come back or we don't. But that's the total picture. That's the total package. And so what we see is in the first century, as Messiah walked on earth, as the disciples walked on earth, as Paul walked on earth and ministered in the, uh, among Israel and among the nations, they ministered a Jewish message to the nations, a literal fulfillment of the seed of Abraham, speaking of Yeshua. The same seed of Adam that would crush the serpent's head is the seed of Abraham that would bring redemption to the world, that would be a blessing to the nations. And as soon as the nations are dropped in, brought into this thing, all of a sudden the nations go, yeah, but we don't need them anymore. We're good. But what we're seeing now is as more and more denominations are turning their back on Israel and on the Jewish people, what's happening also? And other denominations and churches all around the world, there are uh, Gentile believers who are going... Wait, wasn't, wasn't Yeshua Jewish? Weren't all of his disciples Jewish? Weren't, wasn't the Bible written by Jewish hands? Didn't Yeshua celebrate Shabbat and Shavuot? And didn't Acts 2 happen on Shavuot? And doesn't it say in, in the prophecies that uh, in the end we will all celebrate, go to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, uh, Sukkot, and if we don't, that we're going to reap all these bad things? 
maybe this is stuff that was supposed to happen all along and we just walked away from it. And so we see this return to a scriptural lifestyle of believers at the same time that we see a lot of believers that are completely walking away from the Jewish people yet again and happening, <clears throat> allowing to happen what could become another Holocaust-type situation. And it's all because we have done what Egypt did to Moses and to Joseph. We have made a Jewish person, Messiah Yeshua, not look Jewish anymore. Those that were supposed to be the ones that drive Jews to jealousy for their God because they have the Mashiach, the Messiah that we've always longed for. The, the, one of the core principles of Rambam's 13 principles of faith in Judaism is, I believe in perfect faith in the coming of Messiah. It's one of the central focuses of Judaism. But they don't see the true Messiah because we as believers have robed him in another culture and another religion's clothing and garments and made him not look like what he was, made him unrecognizable to his own people. And so what's happening today, what's happening today is that we're seeing the robes be taken off and we're seeing Messiah begin to arise again uh, as one who's recognizably Jewish and Jew and non-Jew alike are going, I can be Jewish and believe in Messiah. I can believe in Messiah and not be Jewish and still worship with the Jewish people because this is what God always wanted. And just like Moses was told on Mount Sinai, you will know for sure that I sent you when you bring the people back here to worship me. We will know for sure. And don't get me wrong, I know for sure without a doubt. But we will know for sure that Messiah Yeshua is the one he says he is when we all return to Jerusalem to worship for eternity in his presence. And between his death, burial, resurrection, and the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, and then, it's one giant step of faith. Just like Moses had to take a giant step of faith to get Israel out of Egypt to Sinai to see the realities of God's promises and to know for sure that he was doing what he was supposed to do for the God he was supposed to serve. We are all a part of a Messianic Jewish synagogue because we recognize that there is something happening in these latter days in which God is restoring the Jewish identity of the body of Messiah. And so we can either be on board with that or we can just get out the way. Because the body of Messiah as a whole, and I keep saying the body of Messiah, not the church, because as much as most people don't realize this, there have been as many Jewish Christians who have bought into all of this bad stuff as there have been Gentile Christians that have bought into it. The body of Messiah, have we have as a whole... We have done great damage to the image of Messiah. Now, to the glory of God, he doesn't need us to do this work for him. He allows us to take part in it. And so there are those that come to faith. There are Jewish people who come to faith and recognize they can still be Jewish. There are Jewish people who come to faith and, and wholeheartedly buy into uh, a church because they don't realize anything else. But still, there are Jewish people coming to faith. There are Gentiles coming to faith because Gentiles led them to faith, not because Jews led them to faith. There are Jews coming to faith, not because Gentiles drove them to jealousy for the God, but because they're coming to faith because God's leading them that way or because Jews led them to faith. So God doesn't need us to be involved. He just needs us to be willing to be used by him. He wants us to be used by him. He wants us to be a real, true, scriptural image of a follower of Messiah in a world that one doesn't believe there's a such thing as finite truth anymore. That two, 
has lost focus on the need for salvation. Because in the world we live in today, there is nothing but hopelessness. And hopelessness does not allow us to recognize when hope is in our midst. But we carry the hope and the light of Messiah. And so God has called us. He wants to use us to bring that hope to people who don't even know they need it. But we've got to start believing in the Messiah of the Scriptures, not the Messiah that we have created in almost 2,000 years of that theology and ideology that led to uh, an effort just like in Egypt where Pharaoh tried to kill all of the, the, the Jewish men and ultimately wipe out the, the lineage of the Jewish people. <clears throat> Same thing happened in Messiah's day. Remember when he was born, the, the Roman rulers wanted to kill all the Jewish boys too because they knew that this king of the Jews was coming. And nothing's changed. The body of Messiah, we still allow the enemy to use this great tool that he keeps using over and over again, which is to keep the Jewish people from their Messiah. Why? Because he knows that the moment that the Jewish people come to faith, the next thing that happens is the seed of Adam crushes his head. And he knows as long as he can make the body of Messiah look something contrary to Judaism, the Jewish people as a whole will not come to faith in Messiah. And their promised Jewish Messiah. And he keeps using and recycling this plan over and over and over again. He puts it in new clothes, he puts it in new language, but he keeps recycling this plan over and over and over again. And the only way it's going to end is when we as believers go, you know what, I've had enough of this ride. I want off this merry-go-round and I want to do what the Lord wants me to do. I want to be used by God to be a light unto the nations, to carry the salvation of Messiah Yeshua to Jew first and also to Gentiles. The Greek goes more like this in Romans, to the Jew first and likewise or in the same way to the nations. It is important that we as believers as a whole decide that we want to recognize that we serve the promised Jewish Messiah who came for his lost children of Israel so that they could return to their role of being a light to the nations, so that the nations could return to their role of driving, driving Jews to jealousy for their God. This is what he's trying to establish today, what is established today. Um, I believe that this is the burden of the Messianic Jewish movement. Most Messianic synagogues are no more than about 30% Jewish. In our congregation, we, it depends on the week, but we average 15 to 20% um, that's Jewish, which means that the overwhelming majority of our congregation are not. And personally, I don't think a Messianic synagogue can exist otherwise. If we don't have predominantly Gentiles... I mean, just look at prophecy. Prophecy says that, uh, that there will be, uh, depending on how you interpret it, either 10 or 40, but there will be 10 Gentiles grabbing onto the seat seat, the, the tassels of a Jewish person. Depending on how you interpret it, it could be 10 per, because we wear four and there's 40. Either way it goes, there's a lot more Gentiles in the body of Messiah than there are Jews. Why is that? Because there's a lot more Gentiles in the world than there are Jews. We make up less than 1% of the global population. If every single human being alive became a believer and Messiah today, we would still be outnumbered. And I'm okay with that because I recognize scripturally that it was never meant to be just for the Jews. It was always meant to be Jew and non-Jew coming together because God didn't create Jew and Gentile. He created Adam. And from Adam, the nations come and out of the nations, God pulled the smallest nation of all the nations on the face of the earth to make them and mold them into his people that they could be a light to the nations. 
not that we could be separate from the nations. Interestingly enough, Hasidic Judaism developed so that we could better interact with the nation around us and ended up becoming entirely uh, uh, exclusive. But Messianic Judaism can't run that course. If we run that course, we become a failure. We must be Jew and Gentile alike, worshiping the promised Jewish Messiah, coming together, recognizing that all the way through Scripture, from Genesis all the way through the first chapter of Matthew, everything that happened was to bring us to a single intentional moment, which is the birth, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Messiah Yeshua, the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh, and everything from then on is to bring us to the reality that that is still the primary purpose. Every word of the Brich HaDashah is to bring us back to that. Every word that happened before it is to bring us to that. It is the single driving focus of the scriptures is the promised Messiah of Israel. And it's time that, one, we as Messianic synagogues open up our hearts like we're supposed to to the nations and recognize that the body of Messiah is supposed to be uh, Jew and Gentile alike and that the body of Messiah recognize that it's supposed to be a Jewish entity made up of Jews and non-Jews. I know a lot of people don't like hearing that. That's the reality of Scripture. What we know as the church today, I don't think was what God intended for the body of Messiah. I think he uses it and blesses it and he will continue to use it and bless it. All of the rabbis that I've grown up under in the Messianic Jewish movement became believers in the church. I became a believer in the church. I love the church. I love that there are churches that believe in the promised Jewish Messiah. I long for the day when they recognize that they are a part of the nation of Israel as well. I long for the day when my Jewish people open their eyes up to the reality that our Messiah has come and that Gentile believers doesn't make him not ours but instead makes him more ours. Because that was the whole point to us in the first place. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we love you, we worship you, we adore you. Father, we cry out for your love and your mercy in our lives and our hearts. Father, we cry out that you begin to bring a humility to your people both the body Messiah and the Jewish people, to return to the fullness of what the Word of God says about our Messiah and our role in the Messianic kingdom. Father, I pray that you do a mighty and miraculous work in our hearts, that we stop trying to misrepresent who Yeshua is, that we stop trying to misrepresent what the body of Messiah is supposed to be. But most importantly, Father, I pray that you give us the power of your Ruach HaKodesh that we end the enemy's plan to continually drive a wedge between the Jewish people and their Jewish Messiah. Abba, I pray that within our congregation here at Mindtime, you will put a burden on our hearts <clears throat> not to abash the rest of the body of Messiah, but to be used by you, to be used by you, Lord, to be a light into the nations, 
to be used by you to teach about the Jewish roots of the faith when offered opportunity. Father, I pray that you give us patience and wisdom not to shove everything we think and believe down the throats of those who never asked for it. Father, I pray that you give us fertile ground and the hearts of the Jewish community of Baldwin County to shine the light of Messiah, the truth of Messiah, the promised Jewish Messiah, that hearts will be saved, that the lost sheep of the house of Israel will come to a realization of the truth of your salvation. Father, I pray that you continue to build up this passion in our hearts for Jew and Gentile alike to come together in unity in your presence. Father, use us for the good and the glory of your kingdom and may your name be known on high through the works that you are doing in our lives and our willingness to serve you as you lead. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen. Amen.